we'll be reading from Philippians. We'll be reading verses uh, of chapter 3, verses 17, through the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1. So Paul writes this to us this morning, and God speaks through this good word. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Be seated. God's holy word. Amen. The famous transcendentalist Ralph Waldo Emerson said that a person will worship something. Everyone will worship something. We might think that in the deepest recesses of our heart, nobody knows what we're giving tribute to, but it will come out. He says, we are worshiping what we are becoming. We are worshiping what we are becoming. For the Christian, hopefully that is Christ, and we're becoming more Christ-like. But we need to think of the effects if we're not worshiping and following Christ. If we worship something, some product, what will happen We'll become more artificial, more fake, and we'll never have enough of it. If we worship our partner, we'll simply become their clone and we'll lose identity and any, any distinction. If we worship our health and our body, we'll always be too ugly, too fat, too skinny, too short. It won't work. Worship your children. Worship our children will become childish will become petty, and live only in their accomplishments. Worship power will end up being paranoid and afraid. Examples abound throughout history. Nero, about the time of the biblical writings, Roman emperor, kills his two wives, his mother, but then kills himself out of fear and paranoia. Adolf Hitler kills himself in fear of what's coming. More recently, Saddam Hussein, found in his underwear, shriveled up in a hole in the desert in fear. We will become something as we follow and we worship something. There are no atheists. Somebody could, complain, could claim to be an atheist, but they are worshiping something. We all worship something. So, what Paul is going to show us this morning is that we need someone to help us know what to worship. And it's easy to say, some of you might be saying, well, I follow Jesus. I don't need somebody else to tell me. I don't need somebody else to follow. I follow Jesus. And that sounds good. That sounds pious. But it's not realistic. 
and it's not even biblical. We all follow some teachers, some pastors, some coaches, something who are giving us direction. Okay, we are going to follow some. Now, ultimately, as we heard in 1 Corinthians 11 that Adam read, hopefully we're following somebody who's following Christ, but we are going to follow teachers and uh, pastors and leaders along the way, and we need to realize that. So let's look in the text at what Paul has for us this morning. Follow along in Philippians 3. Be like the Bereans. Check the word. Let's see if this matches up what God says for us. And in your, in your notes in the bulletin, have a simple acronym, F-A-C-E, for face. How do we face life as Christians? How do we face the trials before us? The F, we need to follow godly leaders. We need to discern what's of God and follow that. The A, we need to avoid the false. So we follow the true. We A, uh, avoid the false. The C, as we're doing that, we're not just wandering around as Christians aimlessly. We are C, craving. We're longing. We're craving for home. This is not our home. Our home is with Jesus for the Christian. We are headed somewhere, and we need to crave that home. And then the E, we finish, we endure. Paul is going to say that we need to endure and stand until the end. So that's going to be what we follow. So first, the F, the follow. Paul, writing to the Philippians, they're surrounded by pagans, by folks living nominal lives, and he says, you, you need a word picture, Follow me. I'm an example of one who's following Christ. And he says, join in imitating me. Join together. So he's not just saying you follow me individually, but as a whole, the Philippians struggled some with unity. And he says, join together and follow me. Imitate me with with one accord by the way that I have my attitude and my behavior. And he's not being arrogant in this because, again, he's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. And if we still think, oh, that sounds arrogant, he points not to him, just himself, but he says in verse 17, the example you have in us. So he's not just saying there's one pastor only that you follow. There are godly leaders all around. For what we've just heard in, the, in, in, in Philippians about Timothy, about Epaphroditus, about Paul, about other leaders that were in Philippi, he's saying choose and follow godly leaders and follow them Uh, well as they follow Christ. We heard in the children's message, we are going to follow those things that we find to be marvelous, whether it's a sports team, a superhero. We're going to imitate and we're going to mirror what we find marvelous. And we learn best by having a teacher show us how to do something and then we mimic it. We follow it along the way. Jesus showed us that. Paul is showing us that as he follows Jesus. A true leader, a true leader isn't so much about you following him or her as much as getting you to the right destination. A godly leader is one who says, I might not look the best, I might not have everything, I might not know everything, but I know where we need to go. Follow me to get there. Follow me to get there. Last week, Adam gave that that great illustration about running. 
when he was running that race and he looked back and then he fell behind the guy on his right who passed him. So we'll take not the running illustration, but now think of cycling. Okay, those of you who might have been watching the Tour de France that's going on right now, rarely in that race will you ever see two cyclists riding side by side for very long. Unless it's a sprint finish, you're not going to see them doing that because what's going to happen? One of them will just fall behind the other one, tuck in behind them. And as soon as they do, that one who pulled back into second can immediately let up. In fact, sometimes they have to let up or they would crash into the one in front of them because they do 30% less work when you draft off that leader. Much, much easier to do that. And that's what Paul is showing us in the Christian life. We need to follow other godly leaders because when we do, we build off their strengths. We can make use of things that they've learned along the way where they can say, here's something that went well for me in my walk with the Lord. Do that. Here's some things that I failed in along the way. Don't do that. Save yourself the heartache. Make it easier on yourself. And that's what we can get by following godly leaders. And if, for application, if we're not being mentored, if we're not being discipled by someone, find someone to do that. Fall in behind them in the race. Make use of their strengths. Build off of that. Build off of godly leaders. Follow the true. Follow the true. Then as we said, there are choices. Yogi Berra, who said, you got that fork in the road. You're going to have to take it. Can't just sit there. We have choices. And so Paul's pointing out, don't just blindly follow anyone. In the text, he points out the ones that we want to avoid. He says that they are enemies of the cross. Enemies of the cross, their end is destruction. Clearly, they're not Christians. But, like any cult that comes to your door, knocks on the door, sometimes you might spend hours with them, right? And what are they doing for the first couple hours? We're like you. We're Christians, on the same team. We believe the same stuff. And you're like, so why are you trying to, what are we doing here? Cut to the chase. Get to the bottom of this. What are you trying to convert me to? But what they're trying to do is get in, deceive you for a while, get integrated, and then the heresy can come out after you've already pulled in. Same thing here with the folks in Philippi. These teachers were integrated. They had worked their way into the church and they were all the more dangerous, all the more dangerous. And there were basically two things that they were teaching. One, we'd say they had some Judaizers, Judaizers legalists, okay? The gospel is not good enough, okay? You need to do some other stuff. The antinomians, meaning anti-against nomos law, they were against the law. Just do whatever you want. Live freely, sensualist, licentious, antinomians. Two, two cases there, okay? We know we're supposed to reject that. We know that. But does it work its way even into the church? For the Judaizers, for legalism, does that show up for us? Give me a list. Give me a list of things to do to get my children to turn out just right. 
give me the steps I need to make my husband love me. Give me the steps that I can be a CEO by age 40. Give me what I need to do to have a pain-free relationship with all my family. We want that checklist. We want that set of rules to follow in order to be right. That's not saying getting those pieces of advice are not good. They can be very good. But often what happens is we want to be justified. Justified in what sense? If it doesn't work, I can blame someone else. I can blame the coach. I can blame the counselor. I can blame my spouse. I have a, sca- a scapegoat. I have a scapegoat. It's not my fault. I'm justified. I'm justified. Rather than dealing with our own sin, with the ways of the world, it's a broken world, and repeatedly coming to the cross, and repeatedly coming in relationship to Christ, we try to justify ourselves through these other lists of things rather than going to Christ repeatedly. That Judaizing stuff and legalism can show up for us right and left. So maybe, maybe it's the antinomian, maybe it's the licentiousness that that hits us. Paul says here of them, their God is their belly. They even glory in their shame. So the Greeks at that time, what they would say is, the body is evil. It, it, it's just bad. What matters is the spirit. Therefore, what I do with my body doesn't matter. The spirit is what needs to be good and pure. Body doesn't matter. Therefore, I'm free to do whatever I want with my body because it doesn't matter. And we can see in Western culture where this has arisen. We used to have The age of faith, go back, say, to the Reformation. Folks, living by faith, not just blind faith, just nothing makes sense and I'll just choose Jesus. No, good, reasonable faith. But then in the Enlightenment, we come to the age of reason. Everything can be explained and you don't need God. But now we've migrated into the age of feelings. All feelings are good, your feelings are good, my feelings are good. But we won't. We don't call it age of feeling. We'll make it sound better. It's the age of authenticity, we'll call it. You follow what feels good, nevertheless. 1960, since then, American psychologist David Myers points out in this age of feeling, we have twice the divorce rate, three times the rate of teen suicide, four times the violent crime rate, five times the prison population, seven times the rate of cohabitation, We're in a paradox of hedonism. The more we seek earthly pleasure, the more we find pain. So is the answer to be a stoic? I just won't go after anything. No feelings. I'll just be a stoic. No. As Thaddeus Williams points out, he says we need to be on a quest. Points out what's a quest. Examples. Frodo and Sam in The Lord of the Rings giving of themselves to go into the heart of Mordor, to give up themselves for this quest that had true meaning. William Wilberforce, powerful scene in Amazing Grace. The same parliament that mocks him, 11 years later after his quest to end the slave trade, 
rises and cheers him because his quest was for something outside of himself, something good that he pursued. So this sensualism, this licentiousness that we're talking about, it can show up in the church too. We can catch ourselves saying, it's who I am. These are my feelings. This is how God made me. But we, and, and we might say, I'm speaking the truth. Bible says, speak the truth. I'm speaking the truth. I don't, sorry if it hurts you, but I'm speaking the truth. Bible says, speak the truth in love. Take every thought captive. Don't just blurt out, vomit out your feelings. Arrogance says, all my feelings are good. True authenticity says, I need a heart surgeon. As Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all else. I need a heart surgeon because all my feelings aren't good. Another check for ourselves to see if we're falling into this licentiousness where the God, their God is their belly. If my liberty, if my freedom becomes somebody else's liability, I might be living by my belly. If my liberty and freedom becomes somebody else's problem because it's just I'm being free to do whatever I want, that might be what we're talking about here. So this is not the kind of thing where you say, well, I'm more prone to legalism or I'm more prone to licentiousness and I just need to swing the pendulum back and have a few more rules here and follow that and I'll balance out. That's like thinking in two dimensions and the answer is in three dimensions, four dimensions. The answer is outside of ourselves. It's in Christ Alone, And that is what Paul is pointing to as he leads over and over. So question, how does, how does Paul feel about this? And what I mean is he doesn't just say those evil teachers, they're going to get it and I feel good about it. What does he say? He says, I weep. I weep over them. I weep over them and I weep over the ones that they're going to lead astray. This is a passionate issue. For him, he doesn't glory in their downfall. He hurts for them. I think of this years ago. Uh, my, Donna showed me a letter from when she was six years old at a, at a summer camp, and she was writing home to her parents. Her parents saved the letter, and it said, "Camp is awful. The counselors are mean. They they blah blah blah." And this is a tear. So she cried a tear on the letter, circled it, wrote, this is a tear, sent it home to her parents. She's proving, I'm weeping, this hurts, this is awful. We'll have to ask her parents if they came and got her or not. But, but the point was, she was, this meant something. And Paul's saying, I'm weeping as I write this to you. This matters to me. And how often in the church are we not emotional? And I don't mean we need to necessarily, oh, let's just shift, uh, shift our uh, Church of the Redeemer to be Pentecostal. No, but we need some passion about some things, passionate about the lost, passionate even about our own salvation. When's the last time you were just amazed at what Jesus did for you? So I was, I was talking about my family about this recently, just to say, growing up, New Orleans, not hearing the gospel, fourth grade, and, and, and for me, it's just an amazing story that God was graceful. He was gracious to me. Fourth grade, I asked my mom, Stephen down the street, he goes to church. 
can we start going to church? Mom starts taking me to church. It was, it was awful. <laughs> I, I don't know if we ever heard the gospel, and it felt like I was taking medicine. This is so awful, boring. I guess I'm okay for another week. And we come back the next week, and it was, it was awful again. Because I wasn't hearing the gospel. I wasn't hearing the gospel, sadly. Then when I was 15, played on a, a travel baseball team. We went, went all over the nation. The coaches, he, he was a devout Catholic so come bottom of the last inning, we're praying Hail Mary's, Hail Mary this, Hail Mary full of grace, Lord is with thee. And then we go to mass before and after games. But the thing was, God is in his sovereign grace, even though I'm not getting the gospel, he's making me aware there's something you need. I'm out here. I'm out here. You need something. Two later, TV's always on in our house, and I'm wandering through one day, Billy Graham crusade is on. I sit there and I, I hear it, and I know that's me. I need, I need something. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. So I'm one of those folks who call in, <laughs> write in, <laughs> and, and I need Jesus. So was that when I was converted? I don't know. But God in his grace, uh, he called me to himself. And, and so there's no pride in that. But it, there's, there's, and there's no looking on, down on anybody else. They're saying, Jesus, why did you save a jerk like me? Why did you do that? I don't know, but thank you. Thank you. And your testimony might be simpler. It might be as a six-year-old, I walked the aisle, I received Jesus, and he's never let me go since. Amen to that. That your testimony is not one where you had to go through hell on earth to get to heaven in a radical conversion. You be amazed and give thanks to Jesus no matter what your story, your testimony is. So we follow the true, we avoid the false, we crave, we long for home. We long for home. The word that Paul uses to describe the people here is he says, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship. So the Philippians would get that because they're under Roman rule. So they, they're, they're kind of independent, but not really because they're ruled by Rome. Paul is saying the same way you ultimately are ruled by Christ. Live like that. Ruled by God's kingdom and long for that because your homeland ultimately is in heaven. And he's saying, we wait, we eagerly wait for being home with Jesus. So like, like the, uh, and, and you can think of times where you've been waiting for something. You knew it was going to come, but you're eager for it. You're on the edge of your seat. Maybe you've gone on some long trip, a mission trip or something. And you know when you come off that plane, when you're going down the corridor, you're going to see your family there. So you're not just you know, doing this. You're eager to get there and see them and be with them. That college freshman who's coming home after that first semester away, they know their parents, their family are going to be there, but they're longing for it. They're eager to be there. The same way for the Christian, we're eager ultimately to be with Jesus. And then one of the most glorious things in this passage, look at what it says. It says, of Jesus, he will transform our lowly body, to be like his glorious body. So if you die today, your soul 
spirit will go to be with Jesus in paradise. This is talking about something in one sense bigger than that. Because it's not just about you. It's about the end times. It's about when Jesus comes back and the dead in Christ shall rise. The church meets him. This is the second coming. This is glorious. And this is glorious because of the word body. God cares not just about our spirit. He cares about our body. We are a whole being. Our bodies are broken. Our bodies are broken in this world. And God cares about it. He will make it right. And some of you, for good reason, can relate all the more to looking forward to that. Had the blessing of, of conversing briefly with Jennifer this week about that. And that her body, her leg, it will be perfect at the second coming. Many of the rest of you have much suffering as well. And we know that. Whether it's emotional or physical. And you can long for that day when God will make our bodies perfect. Why? Because he has to. Because we need to worship him perfectly. If our bodies aren't perfect, our eyesight, our feelings, our legs, our arms, we can't worship him perfectly, and he wants that for us. He is going to restore our bodies. My daughter asked me a week or so ago, How, what's it going to look like? You know, is, is a child going to look like a child, an adult, an adult, an older person? What's it going to look like? I don't know. But he says here in this passage, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself, Jesus' power that can create 500 billion galaxies of billions of stars and can hold it all together and create everything perfectly, he's going to do it perfectly. And we can rejoice in that. So the application is we long for, is we crave being home with him, is to think of a time when we were homesick. When was the time you were homesick? It might have been relationships, memories that have you longing for that home. What relationships and memories do we have with Christ and his people that have us longing for being with him? Jonathan Edwards, a famous theologian, he had his resolutions he knew we're all tempted to, to think about lots of other things. He would have his resolution so that he would at times just dwell on heaven. Think about being there with the Lord so that he developed a craving for being with Jesus. Finally, the E. We follow the true. We avoid the false. We crave for home. Until then, we endure. Until then, we stand if we were to flip through Philippians, listen to some of the words that we've heard so far and think of the theme. Imprisonment, defense, witness, imperial guard, bold, without fear, deliverance, courage, obedient to the point of death, poured out, fellow soldier. These are words of war. Paul, the Philippians, you, me, we're in a battle. Whether it's against hostile pagans, 
whether it's against legalists, sensualists, whether it's our own sin nature, it's a battle, and we can never forget that. And Paul calls these people that he is striving for, my joy and my crown, my beloved. He tenderly loves for them and cares for them, wants them to make it in this battle. And his command to them is to stand firm, to stand firm. Those two words to me, it's easy the picture I get every time. Fellowship of the ring, coming to the end, the mines of Moria, the party is going through, orcs are upon them, and they send forth the champion. Picture of Satan himself, the creature, the Balrog. Fire breathing comes forth. Gandalf goes back. Gandalf stands on the bridge of Khazad-dûm, tells his other party to go on, and he stands and faces the, the Balrog and says, you shall not pass. Stands firm. He stands firm. Gives of himself. So as, as we close, two more things. Just this past week, I was in the, in the YMCA, and I happened to see this guy on his shirt. He had one word in Greek. The word was staketa, which is, I said, what's that word? Staketa. He said, what's that mean, stand firm? That's what I thought. Hey, stand firm. That's where I'm going to be closing the sermon this week. And I'm thinking, man, is this providential? This guy, is just, this is from God. He's just going to give me the most powerful Transform, whatever, illustration. <laughs> so I talked to him for a bit, and it, it, was, it was a bit simple. It was a bit simple. He was a soccer coach at a Christian college, and, and the, the team had been kind of known for, for living, not Christian lives, but a bit pagan style, and, 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 and not being unified. So he and another coach adopted that slogan, stand firm. And it made a difference. The team became more unified, played better, won more games, and, 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 and was uh, living more Christ-like lives. So it wasn't the powerful illustration I was looking for. But yet I thought, you know what? Actually, that's what this is about. Because rarely are we going to be out there as Gandalf standing against Satan himself, the Balrog on the bridge of khazad But... We're called to stand firm in simple ways along the way. As we endure until the end, endure is often a long time. And as I thought about this, I just wanted to close by encouraging many of the older folks in this congregation who are enduring, who are walking faithfully year after year after year, after many trials, after many emotional scars, after many health scars, you are faithful, you are standing firm. It might not look that glorious, but you are a testimony to many of us who are looking to you to finish the race and stand firm and endure. May we all keep on keeping on in that. Let us pray. Lord, in the end, 